Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. Over 100 years ago, students of Canadian history would turn to a phenomenal series of 21 volumes entitled The Makers of Canada. This series was very much a product of its times, a search for historical meaning through the lives of explorers, key colonial leaders, and key politicians. Of course, they were all white men. Now, imagine this. What if you were given the chance to start a new collection called The Makers of Canada? Who would you include? One person I would consult would be Jennifer Elric, a professor of sociology at McGill University, because I suspect she'd have a very original idea for such a collection. Her new book is entitled Making Middle Class Multiculturalism, Immigration Bureaucrats and Policymaking in Postwar Canada. It is published by the University of Toronto Press. We reached Professor Elric at her office in Montreal. Jennifer, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. to yesterday for this episode, Jennifer. What was PC 1967-1616? Oh, that makes it sound very technical. Um, PC 1967-1616 was an order in council that uh, amended the immigration regulations accompanying the Immigration Act of 1952. Um, and to make that sentence understandable, I should probably explain each of those terms and how they're related. When I say PC 1967-1616 was an order in council, order in council is a legislative instrument in Canada that allows the executive, um, you know, the, the minister of the day um, and his or her consultants, to table laws that are signed by the governor general without putting them before parliament. So this specific order in council is more popularly known as the 1967 immigration regulations. And these are different from immigration acts. So immigration acts are laws passed by Parliament outlining the scope of Canada's immigration policy. Um, and these have historically specified that so-called admissibility criteria, so guidelines on exactly who is eligible to enter Canada and under what terms, are to be spelled out in accompanying immigration regulations. And these are passed by order in council. So while Canada does amend its immigration acts, um, the 1952 Act is relevant to the period my book covers. Uh, since then, there's been the 1976 Act and the 2002 Act, which is still in effect. This is done via Parliament. The minister always has had substantial powers to shape that legislation after the fact and without parliamentary scrutiny via these immigration regulations. Um, for example, and this is true today, for example, you know, we have the 2002 Immigration and Refugee Protection Act that still governs our immigration policy, but it also has accompanying regulations, and they're updated uh, frequently, uh, most recently, as far as I can tell, on January 1st of this year. May 1967. PC 1967 so important. The 1967 immigration regulations fundamentally changed how Canada selects permanent immigrants as skilled workers and as family members. Um, so let me describe that fundamental change. 
So until 1967, immigration selection depended a lot on a person's country of origin, uh, which is a polite way of saying that it was focused on managing the racial and ethnic composition of immigrants uh, to Canada. And uh, the Immigration Act and regulations were skewed to admit people from predominantly white countries and exclude people from predominantly non-white countries. Um, and uh, this was true both for workers and for family members. Uh, some adjustments were made in 1962, but it was only in 1967 that Canada moved from selection by origin or a focus on national group membership to individual level, what we call universal selection criteria. And they're called universal because these selection criteria can apply to anyone regardless of their national origins, race, or ethnicity. Um, just uh, the 1967 immigration regulations, you know, did this for workers by, you know, allocating points for specific uh, criteria. Criteria. And um, this selection instrument, which is still in place today, is popularly referred to as the point system. So we have a transformation then, not so much in law, but in regulation. These are instructions to the public servants who will administer the Immigration Act. Am I correct? That's correct, yes. And so we're moving away from, as you say, country of origin Anybody in the world could apply to come to Canada, to, to become an immigrant to Canada, and they would be judged by what kind of criteria? Really two kinds of criteria. Uh, if we're talking about skilled workers, it might be easier to focus on uh, one group rather than workers and family members together. So on the one hand, and this is well known, um, these criteria focus on you know individual traits uh, that are related to economic utility. What can someone do for us on the labor market, right? So these are things like educational qualifications, age at the time of entry, uh, whether or not someone had a job offer, um, occupational skill level, etc. Um, what I also show in the book, however, is that the selection criteria went beyond this economic utility to include more subtle judgments or cultural and moral judgments about who people are and who they could be in society. Um, and I argue that this gave the selection a middle-class inflection. So not just economic utility, which was also important, but also much broader ideas of who potential Canadians should be. So how did that translate in terms of the work of the public service? Would they interview immigrants in their land of origin? Well, so that's, uh, yes, that definitely happened, uh, but that's not the focus of my book. Uh, my book focuses on a much less known or, or less discussed uh, aspect of the immigrant admissions procedure um, in the post-war period that I cover, and that involved um, what, what I think of and describe as high-level immigration bureaucrats, so people like the minister, the deputy minister, um, the director of immigration, and heads of departments actually making decisions on a case-by-case -case basis about who can enter the country and on what terms. Um, and they did this by uh, admitting immigrants via order and counsel. So I just described that instrument a moment ago as uh, something that's used to create immigration regulations. But immigration acts in Canada have always given the minister and um, his or her uh, respective advisors the authority to use orders in counsel to admit or exclude any individual or group of persons from Canada, notwithstanding both the Immigration Act and the regulations. So the minister and advisors have always had a carte blanche uh, for deciding who comes and goes in the last instance. But these new regulations gave uh, these senior public servants even more discretion? Is that what you're saying? 
No, actually, the other way around. I'm saying this discretion gave us the immigration regulations. And this was a bit of a, a unique circumstance. So in Canada in post-war, in the post-war era, was facing a lot of external pressures to move away from um, this selection by national origin. Um, and it wasn't just Canada that was under these pressures. Uh, you know, to name a few, for example, you know, we after World War II uh, and in the wake of the Holocaust and emergent decolonialization movements, there was, you know, a big cultural and normative change in international political culture to recognize individual human rights, um, you know, that, that made it, you know, somewhat illegitimate to have these kind of discriminatory selection policies on the books. So there was, there was some big external political pressures to change. And, you know, Canada at that time also had uh, big foreign policy ambitions. The Pearson government was really trying to bring Canada into, a, you know, transform Canada into a big global player. One of the ways of doing that was to establish Canada as a moral force, right, through UN peacekeeping, um, but also, you know, if you're trying to, uh, to to be a moral force in the world, again, in light of these changing contexts, it can be quite difficult to have, you know, racist uh, selection policies based on national origins on your books. Let's not forget that the economy was booming and Canada needed workers. Absolutely. I was just about to mention that. So there were, you know, domestically, there are strong economic pressures. Absolutely. You know, the economy was booming. Canada had a relatively small population. It also wasn't getting as many immigrants from traditional source countries like the United Kingdom. Um, anymore. So there was a need to find new sources of, of, of good workers. And so there were a lot of there were a lot of pressures being put on the government uh, to change, um, and the, the change being demanded was pretty big, right? Um, if uh, one of the things that intrigued me going into this project was the what was imagining what would have been like to be in an organi- organization that had been tasked for uh, you know, basically a hundred years with you know building a white settler society, and all of a sudden there are all these pressures to change and admit people from well places that you know had been considered you know, uh, off the table previously, you know, so what must have been like to to negotiate those changes? Um, And there's not been a lot of work that's gone into the state and tried to figure out what was happening on the ground. So what was the impact of these regulations then? I mean, did did we, did Canada suddenly change its immigration uh, policy? I mean, in terms of the application, did we immediately see a transformation in who was invited to come to Canada? How long did it take for it to start having an impact? Well, I argue in the book that the impact started long before the 1967 regulations. Um, and, and that's because, you know, in the context of all these pressures, it, can, it takes a long time to do a 180. I think it takes a long time to do a 180 in any, um, any big policy choice, right? And so if you're looking just at what's happening on the books with, with acts and regulations, it looks like there's a relatively relatively swift change, right? You know, we go from 1952, the first, you know, post-war immigration act and its accompanying regulations, which were really a status quo. There were some slight adjustments along the way. And then 15 years later, we end up with this, you know, wide open universal immigration policy. I argue that what led to both the immigration regulation changes and their effects started in the 1950s with civil servants confronted with these wide open pressures and also uniquely, um, and this is the interesting part of the story with the orders in council and the vast powers of admission, they were confronted with processing thousands of cases a year. 
Um, there were a lot of flaws in Canada's post-war immigration system. Uh, a lot of the regulations were vague, so people further down the chain, the people we think of as usually as sitting in offices in different parts of the world and you know doing the grunt work of going through files, you know if they couldn't get past a, a certain problem in the file, it would be shunted up the hierarchy, eventually landing in the minister's office. Um, you know a lot of MPs and lawyers and and organizations would send files directly to the minister's office, aware of the of the fact that he or she had this discretion. So these high-level immigration bureaucrats that, yes, also made immigration regulations, they were also trying to work through actually processing thousands of applications a year, which means they were sitting there and having to ask themselves every time they opened a file, you know, who is this person and what will make them admissible to Canada? Their answer over time can be seen in the cumulative decisions that they made. You know, what is it that made people admissible over time um, to Canada. These were things like, yes, economic utility, educational qualifications, job experience, job offer, the things I've already mentioned, but also some general traits that were considered desirable. Um, things like, uh, you know, propensity for steady employment, uh, ambition to build assets, you know, which denotes thrift or ambition, military or community service, entrepreneurial spirit, resourcefulness, having a strong work ethic, uh, which are all traits that some scholars have, have argued are, are relatively middle class traits and so what main, uh, so what I'm trying to say is, you know, uh, just to, to oversimplify, you know, p challenged with all these pressures to make Canada multicultural, you know, in, in, in sort of uh, ministers and, and advisors, the deputy ministers, all these high level bureaucrats, they use these cases to puzzle through that bit by bit and came up with this answer. So if I understand you correctly, it actually starts with the Louis saint Laurent government that is coping with a demand to immigrate. And again, in the 1950s, we have a massive expansion of the economy. So there's an appetite, a domestic appetite for immigration, a domestic appetite for employment. I mean, for, for their educate their employment opportunities. And what you're saying is that uh, it becomes overwhelming. It becomes overwhelming for the minister or the deputy minister to have to deal with these individual applications. Absolutely. Not just from workers, but also from family members. Right, right. And uh, it is a lot of work, and it continues from the Saint Laurent government through the Diefenbaker government into the Pearson government. I, I want to come back again to the discretion. So what you're saying is that the discretion that had been enjoyed by these very high-ranking uh, civil servants starts to, uh, I mean, am I getting you correctly, that it starts to sort of come down to lower levels, that more public servants are given the the discretion to make decisions as to who will immigrate to Canada? That's only after the 1967 immigration regulations. Right, right. So what, what, I'm, what I'm tracking in the book are the subtleties of these decisions over time that actually gave us the letter of the law, if you will, in 1967, at which point, of course, as immigration regulations, they get disseminated and um, you know, passed on to lower level uh, immigration officers, which amplifies their effect over time, because then they become the basis of you know, immigrant selection in a mass immigration uh, program. So what happens post-1967? We're getting a very different kind of immigrant, are we not, in Canada? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what the 1967 immigration regulations did was they fundamentally changed the demographic composition of uh, immigration flows to Canada. Before 1967, um, as I've already mentioned, we had mainly immigrants from the United Kingdom or Western or Northern Europe. And very early on, after the 1967 regulations, we see a shift in that. Um, and that shift continues to this day. 
So in uh, 2019, for example, uh, the top uh, source countries of permanent immigrants to Canada included countries like India, China, the Philippines, Nigeria, Pakistan, uh, Eritrea, all countries that uh, would have been uh, considered you know, non-eligible source countries prior to 1967. So your argument, Jennifer, is, if I understand it correctly, is that as a result of this change of policy, Canada is transformed through a middle-class multiculturalism. In other words, middle-class multiculturalism becomes an important feature of our country. Can you explain that? Yes. When I say that immigration to Canada is, uh, is informed by middle-class multiculturalism, uh, what I mean is that, uh, yes, our, our immigrant inflows via the selection instruments we created in 1967 have become demographically multicultural in the sense that um, we have a very wide range of uh, source countries that are represented um, but I also mean that it's middle class in the sense that, you know, it's not just economic utility, um, you know, getting in people uh, from anywhere who can do the jobs that we need at any given time. But it's about much more. But it's about our understanding of, of who these people are in class terms. Um, and this makes a difference because it's not just about bringing in individuals who can fill needs in the labor market um, as our economy evolves into a knowledge economy, but it's about creating you know a national group that is marked by certain moral and cultural traits you know what uh the ones i've described as as middle class uh values this is about a bigger vision of who we are uh politically and i think this uh this has normative implications for us even today um because you know if we were just concerned about people doing jobs the kinds of people who are considered eligible for permanent immigration to Canada would be much different. Uh, you'll notice that we are heavily socioeconomically selective in terms of the kinds of the level of education people have, uh, the kinds of occupational skill levels they have to occupy, um, and you'll, you'll notice that there are very few pathways for people like, say, truck drivers or service workers who are very useful to the economy, but not quite what we imagine um, as you know making up. The the Canadian nation. You know, I think perhaps even now with the Trudeau government, this emphasis on, you know, the the ideal, you know, Canadian nation as being on middle class footing is has become even more clearly articulated with, you know, the, the creation of um, the Minister of Middle Class Prosperity, all right, and the 2019 uh, Liberal Party platform uh, talking, you know, in multiple uh, spots about supporting the middle class. I mean, this is a, this is a term that we throw around. Um, but when, uh, but when you see the kinds of qualities that we've been selecting on, you know, and that move away from economic utility for the past 70 years, you know, I think this has implications for, you know, not just the immigrants themselves, but also who we think belongs to the Canadian nation. And, and that matters for things like social redistribution, right? You know, who do we think matters? Who deserves support as part of the nation? Yes, we're focusing on the middle class. Um, but what about the working class? What about service workers? And in addition to redistribution, Distribution, I think, you know, who we have come to think of as the ideal multicultural immigrant to Canada uh, over time could really affect who we think needs support um, for, you know, increased or new forms of permanent admissions. Um, for, you know, there are a lot of uh, people looking to come into Canada who are slotted into groups that we don't associate with economic utility and middle class status. I'm thinking here of, you know, quote unquote, low skill 
skilled you know, service, service workers or even refugees and asylum seekers, right? So what does it mean to have this ideal vision of middle-class multiculturalism for people who would like to come who don't fit into this vision? I, I think this is where your book is so important. Um, I, I wasn't aware of this. I wasn't tying together the notion of attracting a middle class of, of immigrants and tying that to the emerging reality in the 1960s and 1970s of multiculturalism. That's why I mentioned that book collection at the outset. Reading you, I was reminded of the makers of Canada because the public servants who are who are handling these applications from around the country are really remaking Canada. Are they not the makers of Canada? I would say they they absolutely are. And it might not have been intentional, at least from the outset. Uh, I don't want to give that impression uh, that they, they, they came into this work and, and went about these tasks over 15 years. I mean, the cast of characters involved obviously changed over that time. But I what I do see is a certain logic emerging in these immigration decisions. And at some point, and this is in the mid-1960s, uh, there are even documents uh, that show, archival records that show that they too to come to recognize what they're doing to some extent and uh, what advantages it could bring. Because one thing that we don't often uh, acknowledge when we talk about the external pressures, uh, you, know, you know, forcing Canada to change its policy at the time is that, you know, Canada was not acting in a, in a vacuum. These civil servants in Ottawa, they were very much aware of, you know, other players on the world stage, uh, what it is that could make them, their, their system effective. And in the 19, mid-1960s, they're reflecting on how other countries have managed this pressure to open up their uh, populations, their immigration systems demographically. And they look specifically at the United States and the United Kingdom, you know, two of the biggest competitors, and see, you know, according to their perceptions, that racial diversity in immigration has failed there, in part, in their opinion, because it has gone hand in glove with urban poverty and conflict. And uh, there are some very interesting documents in which um, they talk about the, the United States and the United Kingdom, and I'm going to quote here, mixing the problems of race and poverty. Uh, and they think that uh, if they can, another quote, avoid the tragic examples of Britain and the United States, they will, um, this is one of my favorite quotations, enable Canada to give a striking example to the world and adopt a position of leadership at this difficult time when racial problems are so pressing. Mm. But at the same time, they also know that they are in deep competition with countries like Australia and New Zealand, uh, the United States, to attract high-quality immigrants, are they not? Yes, they are. Although I have to say, in my reading of the records, that's that's not what's foremost at the top of their minds, because they are already, instead of worrying about attracting more, they are already swamped uh, by these immigration files in these offices. As an, an eyewitness said of Guy Favreau's office, um, you know, the, the, the newly appointed uh, minister in 1963, um, an eyewitness said, there was nowhere to sit down because the chairs were full of files. <laughs> Now, Guy Favreau, is, uh, he was a Quebec member of parliament. He's named to cabinet by Lester Pearson, who had just been elected in 1963. His government was it's a minority liberal government in 1963. What do we know about the Pearson government uh, in terms of its uh, approach to immigration? Did it campaign on immigration reform? Or do you see this more? I mean, you mentioned it earlier that there was more of an organic change of direction going back to the 1950s. Was this a priority for Pearson? 
So in my book, I don't track uh, the more classical political politics side of this story, which is always the temptation, right? You know, who are the governments of the day, uh, liberal or conservative, individual personalities, um, either in political office or in the civil service. Uh, so one of the things I, one of the contributions I'm hoping to make with this book is to offer a completely new focal point in this discussion um, and to say, okay, you know, individuals are, are, are important, of course, we know they leave their mark, um, as do administrations. But the interesting thing is, if you look at the cumulative results of all these discussions over 15 years, three different administrations, uh, lots of personnel turnover, there is a remarkable consistency. And that in itself is, is worth highlighting. Let me ask you a question that's completely outside your book. And that is what I'm reading in in the newspapers today, we often hear comparisons. I hear this in French commentary. We also hear it, of course, in the American commentary, that they wish that they had adopted a point system like Canada, that Canada has been able to quite literally uh, get the, the, the pick of the litter. It's a terrible expression, but to get the best immigrants possible, presumably to create this new middle-class multiculturalism that you've coined. Why do you think the Americans and other countries, the French I'm mentioning, but there are other, many other countries, why did they not adopt a system like ours? And I recognize this is not part of your book. I'm just curious about where your instincts might lead you on this. The answer is immensely complex. So as, as much as I think the work done by actors within the Canadian state matters, I think the important thing to remember with regards to Canada and you know, what I think is its relative success um, with immigration, um, certainly not saying it's free of discrimination or problems, but, um, you know, there, there, there are other examples in the world. Um, its success is also largely due to broader circumstances of history and geography. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons Canada can, as you say, have the pick of the litter um, is that we don't really have any we don't have many porous land borders, right? Where we're surrounded on most sides by, you know, Arctic ice or oceans. Uh, yes. <laughs> but the longest border we have is with the United States. And, you know, historically speaking, we've had problem competing with the United States. You know, we, we've historically had a brain drain from Canada to the United States, even of immigrants who initially land here. Um, and, uh, you know, for others, we also have, you know, a safe third country agreement in place that allows us to make that border relatively firm. Um, so there are not relatively few people crossing, crossing the green border without authorization. You know, these are circumstances of geography that most countries just don't have. Um, and they matter. And, uh, you know, history also, also matters. Uh, I mean, Canada is not alone in being uh, what scholars sometimes call a country of immigration. You know, we have long had a, a, a policy of, of encouraging mass immigration uh, on a scale that a lot of countries haven't. Uh, you know, the United States and, and uh, Australia have, have had the same thing. Um, but yes, uh, definitely, so that, that, I mean, that history distinguishes us from what's happening in, say, places like Europe uh, or, uh, you know, other you know, countries where there's not been this history of immigration. Our geography distinguishes us certainly from the United States and all of those other countries. Um, Australia is probably closest to having similar, um, you know, possibilities for control, absolute control, which, uh, you know, I think important to, to making this happen, but also then mixed in with this, what, what gives... Canada, uh, you know, that, that secret ingredient, if you will, is this work done around the mid-20th century about, you know, redefining 
Canadian national identity uh, to be more racially inclusive, but exclusive on a class uh, level. And, uh, you know, that is that is a very delicate balance that has then subsequently, you know, to, to name another factor um, in our trajectory, has subsequently been reinforced uh, in different political arenas and institutions, right? You know, after 1967 immigration regulations, which were firmed up by the 1976 Act, you know, we saw the the advent of an official multiculturalism policy. Uh, later, the Multiculturalism Act, school textbooks were changed to tell the history of Canada as being a country of immigration and with a multicultural heritage. These are political reinforcements that have not been taken in other national contexts. I only ask my question, Jennifer, because I've, t- I've heard time and time again uh, from people who immigrated uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s that they had applied, of course, to the United States, to Australia, to Canada. And the reason they found themselves in Canada was simply because the paperwork had been processed more quickly, that the system had come across as fair, that they had a good hearing, and the Canadian government came to a decision rather quickly. And so, therefore, they came to Canada. It comes back to the issue of public administration uh, of, of government getting its act together and delivering on a policy uh, in the process, creating what you're calling a, a middle-class multicultural society. I want to come back to the classic Champlain Society question, which is about your sources. You've uncovered in your book all sorts of uh, new documents. Can you tell me about what is at the source of your book? Lots and lots of documents held in Library and Archives Canada is the short answer to that question. Um, I went through a, a, a large number of boxes of textual records, um, and you know these were mainly, but not exclusively, um, files in Record Group Twenty Six, which are you know, the Deputy Minister's uh, files. And I'm not the first person to turn to these kind of archival records. Uh, there's a lot of rich material in there. You know, draft versions of immigration policy, including snippets and in speeches or reports, um, internal and external correspondence about, you know, statements of political purpose, um, how to, you know, formulate written regulations, all of these things. Um, but what I stumbled on, and um, it took me a while to realize the relevance of, uh, were these order in council admissions, um, as well as order in councils pertaining to deportation appeals, which is sort of the flip side of the coin uh, in answering the question, who can who can be a part of Canada? Well, in de- deportation appeals, someone's already here and might get kicked out. And for order in council admissions, these are people who are not eligible to enter who might be allowed in anyway. Um, and it was these, um, when I started going over these and really thinking about these, um, and these form the, the line part of my investigation in the book, um, it, it became clear to me that there was a real disjuncture between, you know, what was supposed to be formally happening according to immigration acts and regulations at any given time, and what was actually being decided on the ground. So you're actually looking at case files. Yes. Fascinating. Which is tricky because they're not all collected in one spot. Uh, the problem with this is that it becomes very archeo- archaeological. Um, there are a couple of boxes, um, luckily, in which there are you know, batches of records. Um, but in these batches of records, uh, there's, there tends to be relatively little detail. These tend to be you know, sort of tabular summaries of, of individuals admitted from where and sometimes with some reasoning. The really rich documents 
files are unfortunately scattered throughout different thematic files. So either files by national origin, for example, Chinese immigrants to Canada or Italian immigrants to Canada, or they're scattered throughout different themes, you know, family reunification or skilled workers. Um, and so um, it's uh, certainly I, I wasn't able to find all of them, um, but there was a unique combination of these concentrated records and then these more detailed scattered records that helped me paint the picture. And, and these would have been the cases that were more problematic. If they worked their way up to the deputy minister or the assistant deputy minister, whatever, or the minister himself or herself, or they're all hymns, I think, at that point. Uh, except Fairclaw. In, uh, oh, <laughs> Ellen Fairclaw. Yeah. Of course. How could I forget? The first woman named to cabinet. How can I forget? Um, but she was under Diefenbaker, right? Yes. Um, the, but these were all were – these, were these more problematic files? Where decisions had to be made at the top. Well, they were they they were uh, so problematic as to you know not really be considered immigration cases at all. The fascinating thing about these orders in council is that they were put forward by people, and if if lower level officers received them, they were they were forwarded to the minister. These were all the files that, that reached the top. They were from people who weren't actually eligible to enter the country. All right. Uh, these were people whose national origins excluded them from either coming themselves or sponsoring uh, particular family family members. And so, um, yes, they, so they were really sort of, that's why I said earlier, these were, these were sort of a, car, a carte blanche, highly problematic in the sense that they shouldn't have been there. <laughs> Can you give me an example? You mentioned China. Would have been, would, would uh, a Chinese immigrant, somebody coming from the People's Republic of China, been the kind of file that would have been uh, again, more problematic? Absolutely. Um, before, especially before 1962, uh, for example, when, you know, the skilled worker uh, category was opened up ever so slightly, um, people from China were not at all eligible uh, to immigrate as skilled workers, um, at least not within the Immigration Act and regulations. Um, people from China and other Asian countries could only sponsor a very, very limited range of relatives compared to Europeans. So these would be files from workers who want to be admitted anyway, um, or um, sponsors in Canada, Chinese family members looking to sponsor someone they shouldn't technically be allowed to sponsor. That's fascinating. And, and the concern there was what? That their stories couldn't be verified? What was the source of the reticence? Well, the source of the reticence was the position hammered into the Immigration Act and regulations in 1952 and 1953 that these people from these groups were fundamentally inadmissible. The striking thing about all of these admissions is um, is that they were made possible despite that, right? And so we're, we're in that sense uh, more inclusive than one would uh, expect if one was just reading the letter of the law at the time. We see this relaxing with the 70s and 80s, obviously. We see some fundamental changes. So the, the, the point system put in place for workers um, and also for some selection of uh, family members back in the day, extended family members, uh, really becomes an ideal tool for, well, shaping to any political agenda, really. Uh, what we've seen is this tool become used to make um, immigrant selection much more selective on class terms. Um, the level of education we require, the level of skill uh, for uh, for family member the for family members the amount of money someone needs to sponsor extended uh, relatives you know we we've seen those those screws be tightened um, ever so much so 
we started off uh, in the mid 20th century with a with a surprisingly inclusive policy and and even in advance of, of official changes. Um, but because it was put on this this middle class footing of both values and economic utility, that became those became the terms in which you know our, our subsequent evolution into you know now a knowledge society and um, you know even greater competition for for skilled workers in light of that has been you know, has, has has made it possible to use these tools uh, to be slightly more restrictive and um, selective. Either way, the end result is a very new Canada, isn't it? It really is. Jennifer Elric, thank you so much for being a witness to yesterday. Well, thank you very much for having me. I was speaking with Jennifer Elric, the author of Making Middle Class Multiculturalism, Immigration Bureaucrats and Policymaking in Postwar Canada, published by the University of Toronto Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. I want to thank our sponsors, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations. And that always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded on January 24, 2022, as politicians optimistically encouraged to think that the Omicron pandemic might be ending soon. Jessica Schmidt is our producer. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you.